Welcome to the Education of a Financial Planner, where we look at the major concepts in financial planning through the lens of two quant investors who are learning the ropes of the planning process and how to help clients achieve their long-term goals. Learn along with us as experienced financial planner Matt Ziegler helps us understand the most important financial planning concepts that impact all of us and how we can apply them to achieve the best outcomes in our financial lives. In each episode, we will work through one major financial planning concept from the ground up and learn how we can apply it in the real world. From retirement to college savings to taxes to estate planning, we will cover a wide range of topics that apply to each of our everyday lives. We hope you will join us in our learning journey. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at the Lydia Capital Management. Matt Ziegler is Managing Director at Sunpoint Investments. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. Okay, gentlemen, today we are going to talk about a topic that I think a lot of investors are interested in. Um, and it's still, even though it's been happening for uh, a number of years, particularly in the institutional world, you know, individual investors um, have been getting more and more exposure to this. And that's the idea of direct indexing. And the, I think the goal of today's discussion is to talk about what direct indexing actually is, what goes into building a direct indexed portfolio, um, some of the complexities with that, why an investor might want a direct index, maybe some of the pluses and the minuses. And then Matt, um, we'll talk to you and your colleague, uh, Lee, who's joining us today. Hi, Lee. How are you? Hi, Justin. I'm doing well. Yeah, thanks for coming on with us. Uh, this is the first time on the Education of a Financial Planner. And um, I know, uh, you know what you guys do at some point for clients with direct indexing is something that's important to the firm and important to how you advise some of your clients. So you know, talking about these things and how these are incorporated, these types of strategies are incorporated in financial plans is really the goal of today's discussion. I was thinking about this conversation and the kind direct index indexing kind of reminds me of like maybe at least from a narrative standpoint, like where ETFs were like 10 or 15 years ago. You know, you heard that ETFs were eventually going to overtake mutual funds, how superior they were in terms of the mutual fund vehicle and what the benefits of ETFs were. And you know, you see more and more of these studies coming out that direct direct indexing is like the next big thing for many investors and more and more financial planners and firms due to a number of things. Maybe we'll get into why this is, but you know, more and more <clears throat> firms are offering direct indexing type of strategy. So, you know, we'll see in the future. I think this discussion will be interesting in terms of the adoption of direct indexing and how how much it gets incorporated into uh, sort of financial plans and, and for investors. But you know, maybe to start, um, and I'll just kind of throw it out there to the group. Let's just talk at sort of a high level what direct indexing actually is. Yeah. So if you think about like most people would probably own the S and P five hundred in an ETF somewhere, or, or a lot of investors do. If you think about what's going on behind the scenes, if I own SPY, what is the company that operates the ETF doing? They're buying the components of the S and P five hundred. So that behind the scenes, they have holdings in five hundred or so securities, and, and I'm going to get the return of those five hundred or so securities. Well, what's happened in recent years is, is a couple innovations have happened on the brokerage side. One is the use of partial shares and two is zero commissions. And, and what those do, at least in terms of making this appealing to a broad investor, is now investors can go and hold those 500 securities in their individual brokerage account more cost effectively than they used to. 
And, and what that opens up is that opens up the possibility of tax loss harvesting. So if you think about it, if, if I own SPY, I can hold that. And other than dividends and stuff, I don't have to pay any tax till I sell it. That, that's a pretty good deal. But for in certain cases for certain people, you know, if I own those 500 securities, well, in any given year, a portion of those securities are going to lose money. Well, what, I, what can I do? What I can do is I can sell those securities. I can replace them with something that mirrors their return so that I still get the return of the S&P 500 and I can get a tax advantage. And so for certain people, this strategy of instead of holding the ETF or the mutual fund that holds the S&P 500, holding all 500 stocks or some subset of 500 stocks that tracks the index and then opening up this possibility of tax loss harvesting can be an advantage. Matt and Lee, when you guys are talking to investors about the various sort of strategies that can be deployed, you know, why would someone pursue a direct indexing strategy? Like, give me a few examples about why that would be appropriate for some investors. Well, there's a, there's a few reasons, Justin. And again, thanks for having me. With Jack's point being a, the most important one, generating tax losses every year. There's no year where all 500 stocks of the S&P 500 go up. Even a great year, you're going to see dozens or scores of them go down. And you don't have to change your strategy. The manager is going to buy and sell stocks for you. The, the most simple example I like to give is Coke and Pepsi. They offer the same business lines, soft drinks, snacks, etc. Your portfolio exposure is the same whether you own one or the other. So if you start a direct indexing portfolio, Coke goes down, sell Coke by Pepsi, you still have the same underlying exposure. It really doesn't, doesn't change the portfolio that much, but you get to harvest the tax loss. What's, what's interesting for me, like in, in terms of building these is, is the idea of, you know, whenever we've built equity strategies historically, we've always looked at this idea of, I got to try to outperform the S&P 500. You know, that's my stated goal. And in this case, that is actually the opposite of what I want to do. Because as a, as a manager, my job when I build these strategies is to track the S&P 500 as closely as I possibly can. And the bogey I'm judging myself against is how closely I'm able to do that. And so it sort of flips you when you're an active manager, it sort of flips you on your head. Like if I outperform the S&P 500 by 200 basis points with my direct indexing strategy, I've actually done a horrible job. Like I've, I've actually failed there because I have, I've done something that allowed that introduce tracking error relative to the S&P and that tracking error can also work the other way. So to, to me, it's just been, it's been interesting, like flip it on its head when I build these, as opposed to like being an active manager my whole career. Yeah. In us large cap equities, standard tracking error for something in direct indexing is usually around 1% is generating tax losses every year worth a 1% tracking error. We would say yes. Yeah, I would agree. You know, and particularly in the case of, you know, many clients, depending on tax rates and stuff, we'll talk about in a little while. Yep. Right. So it seems like a, it seems like it's an investor comes in and says, you know what, I value the ability to tax loss harvest, which if it's a big taxable account, who wouldn't? I don't want a wide degree, you know, amount of tracking error. And I'm sure the fees kind of play into I mean, usually directing the indexing is pretty low cost. It might not be as low cost as the cheapest like S&P 500 fund, but it's certainly, you know, pretty low cost relative to other alternative equity strategies that are out there. Would you say? Yep. Yeah, Justin, that, that's kind of the bogey, right, is the difference between the fees of a direct indexing manager and the fees for something like SPY. SPY can't go much lower. It's essentially zero. Direct indexing fees continue to decline, 
and the advent of $0 trade commissions across most of the industry has made this accessible to a much broader audience than it would have been even when trades were $7 or $9.95 or pick your, pick your number. If, if you guys are looking at a client and you, know, you have the option of using an ETF type strategy or you have the option of using this type strategy, can you just talk at a high level about what factors with that client you would use to determine which one might be more appropriate? Yep, size, size of client, uh, size of portfolios, number one, uh, tax situations, number two, and if there's any customization that's requested, uh, if you don't want something that tracks the S&P, if you want to put some uh, differentiators on there to make it more appealing to the clients or more in line with their needs, it's a great option. Another, another option where it's often used, and we don't run into this as much, but others do, is if you have concentrated stock positions. If you worked for one of the largest companies and part of your compensation is stock and you own millions and millions of dollars in Google stock or Microsoft or whoever, uh, direct indexing manager can work around that. And it's the marginal impact of all those things. So it's, if you have a concentrated position, how does this complement that? And then is the marginal benefit of owning the direct index where I own all the constituent parts or owning the ETF wrapper in greater service to the client's long run goals. Cause just like minimizing taxes and fees can be great for, especially for after tax money and long-term compounding, we're looking for the marginal impact and the benefits to brain damage ratio to, to invoke, invoke the Wes, which is basically like, are we going to jump through these extra hoops to get some extra bang for our buck? Or are we just printing out or making PDFs of like 500 page long statements with lots of activity for like no real advantage? So the marginal impacts, one of the most important things the advisor has to understand. I was waiting for the random analogy you were going to drop in for direct <laughs> indexing, Matt. I've got one more in my pocket. So he's got, right. yeah, you, you can never count him out till the end. He's going to keep him coming right till we, until we wrap up here. Um, but I, th I thought the point on taxes at the beginning was really important because, you know, obviously like we, we just deployed a direct indexing strategy for a client who's in the top tax bracket in California. So like that's almost the ideal scenario for this. California, I believe, has the highest tax rates in the country. You know, they're in the top federal tax bracket. That is the ideal thing. And, and then it, it just depends in the middle. You know, as you work your way down to different tax rates, there's a lot of different factors that play into this. And, you know, one of the things that I think people have to be careful about, and this is what Justin referenced at the beginning, is the idea that this is the next big thing in investing. This is a tool like ETFs, like anything else in investing. And for some investors, this is going to make a ton of sense. For other investors, it's not. But we're probably going to see the industry of Wall Street jam this down everyone's throat, like whether it makes sense or not. And so as an investor looking at this from the outside, it's, it's just important to understand what are the things that determine whether this makes sense for me. And then, you know, hopefully use it if it makes sense, but don't if it doesn't. Yep. And the answer for taxable portfolios is often, yes, it makes sense. Because, again, the cost to do it is, is now very low. Uh, these these direct indexing strategies, you know, as far as their expense ratio, are, are you know they're what index funds used to charge 10, 15 years ago. The gap keeps narrowing. If it's if it's a tax exempt portfolio like an IRA account, then it doesn't make as much sense unless you're looking for some level of customization to help you stay invested. Yeah, and that, that gap's the really important point because that is when people talk about the negatives of direct indexing, that really is the big one is that the fees are higher. And so the more that gap closes, 
the more case you have on the direct indexing side relative to the ETF side. And, and as, as you point out, like that gap has been closing. You know, this is becoming more available to retail investors. I know brokerages are getting involved in it. Like that gap and what you have to pay to do this is closing. And so that, that makes this more attractive to more investors relative to what it used right. to be. Yep. The, the tax efficiency of the strategy still, again, is like the marginal benefit to the client. Just being able to run this background thing that's tax loss harvesting throughout the year. I'm sure we'll touch on gifting strategies and some stuff too for higher net worth individuals. But it's that that's a background additive benefit or additive, additive part towards your total return is keeping more tax dollars in your pocket just with a strategy adjustment, strategy level adjustment. That's huge. And just before we wrap up the tax thing, you know, one of the other things I've noticed, and Lee may have a comment on this, is there's a big path dependency to this. And so if you end up starting this, like that client I was mentioning that we had in the top bracket in California, they also started doing this at the beginning of 2022, which was a home run because they started doing this in a period where there was tons of opportunity to harvest losses. You know, if, if you start doing it in 1998 or something, you know, you're not going to have as many initial opportunities. So when we look at it and look at how successful it is, there is a, at least some variable that you can't control, which is what is my path of the returns once I start doing it? Yep, Jack, we have some clients who started uh, direct indexing portfolios in 2009, 2010. So at the beginning of 2009, again, like you said, just like beginning of 2022, a fantastic time to start a direct indexing strategy because you have losses everywhere. Those portfolios today that are 13, 14 years old do have some huge unrealized gains in individual positions up to 500 to 1000%. So that is one of the drawdowns is that if we have a continued long-term bull market for equities, the direct indexing manager can't do as much, but we think it's still still worth it in the long term. And, and let's just go back to just contrasting that with what you get in an ETF though, because it is important. So you have, if you've been in a direct index for a very long period of time and you have, you're going to be more weighted, more heavily, that portfolio is going to be more heavily weighted in the stocks that have done well. Um, whereas an ETF will, because they're market cap weighted and they're sort of yep. naturally balancing, um, you know, you might, it's going to be, it's still market cap weighted, but it's going to be less weighted. So that is one of the things that people should understand when direct indexing, rightly. Yep. And there's, and there's a couple ways around it. We'll get to gifting a little bit later. Um, but if, uh, I mean, I know it sounds simple and we're biased as financial advisors, you can always add money. <laughs> and and uh, and diversify because the manager will buy what's underweight and move towards the benchmark. I think the point you made, Justin, and it's that like the ETF is a wrapper. So when I buy or sell the wrapper of all 500 companies to pick on the S&P 500, then my gain loss, short or long term, dividends, the whole thing is the whole thing together. It's the entire wrapped thing. When I break that apart, if direct indexing is the thing that makes sense. Now I own all the constituent parts. I don't have the overall wrapper. So it's like I own 500 different placeholders in there that now I'm in charge of the tax consequences for, or the manager of the direct indexing strategy is in charge of the tax consequences for. To the degree that that flexibility gives you benefit, you want to do it. To the degree that you can like minimize that and normalize it against everything's all wrapped up in one thing, or even if I have a basket or portfolio of index funds. 
Both are the right thing to do, but it's just a matter of what's the marginal benefit on your situation. And that's what we help figure out when we think about it from a financial planning standpoint. Yeah. And I don't think Justin, it's necessarily that you, you have, you know, you have more weight in the big positions. I mean, I think ultimately you're still tracking the index long-term. So you still have the same weight in everything. You know, the weight is obviously sitting below the ETF. And when you own the individual positions, you have the weight in the individual positions. But what does happen is you've got these massive embedded gains in these positions. And so at, at a certain point, it becomes very, very difficult to harvest any losses. You know, you've been doing this for a decade. You've got the same weights, you're tracking the index, but my ability to harvest isn't there anymore because now I can't, you know, I can't sell these positions at a loss. I'm sitting on them as a gain. And so that, that's where the challenge is. You know, that's kind of where the push and pull gums, I think, is you, you get your big benefits in the early years. You, you don't pay that tax. You can reinvest that tax. You can compound that money that you otherwise would have paid. But then in the late years, you're paying a fee difference and you're not getting as much benefit in terms of the harvesting. I, I don't know if that's right. I mean, you guys may have a comment on that, but that's kind of the way I look at it. In, in the last you know, decade and a half, that's certainly been, been the case in U.S. equities. Uh, we have some international like equity ADR portfolios where that even if they're 10, 15 years old, there's still some gains, but certainly not you know, the, the Microsofts or the, the NVIDIAs lately, for example. Um, so it is a little bit, we're, we are a little bit biased towards the last few years. If you would have started in, in 2000 and ran it for 10 years, you might not have the same thought, but it's certainly something to pay attention to. That's a good point on the, I guess, the embedded gains in there, Jack. The other thing though, and it's just something to keep in mind is, you know, not, and Lee, to your point about earlier adding money, you know, if you buy a direct indexing strategy 10 years ago, I believe Tesla wasn't in the S&P 10 years ago. I think it came in after. So another thing that this is just more of a transparency thing that investors should realize is when you're direct indexing, you're buying the S&P 500 or whatever index at that point in time. So as new companies come in and or I guess get removed, you know, you sort of are at the you're, you're not getting exposure to those. And, you know, I'm, I'm using Tesla. That's just kind of a crazy example of how well it's done as a stock, but it's still an important thing, I think, to, to consider. Yeah, but a manager is going to know that one, Tesla got added, and two, as Tesla's performance was so strong in, in later years that that's presenting tracking error. So as, right. as a manager is able, they're going to do what they can to, to correct that or minimize that tracking error. What they're able to do is, of course, dependent upon everybody's individual portfolio. Right. So mm -hmm. there, there are certain situations where when the S&P does its rebalancing, you can just do the rebalancing, you know, because you're in a situation tax wise where you can do it and you can you add Tesla and you continue tracking the S&P. Oh, okay. And, you know, in a good, one of the good things on that side is typically the stuff that's coming out is not the stuff that's done well. Um, typically, the stuff that's coming out is the stuff that has done poorly. So you have an opportunity, you know, with our, like with our stuff so far, having not done it for many years, we're just following the S&P. We're rebalancing along with it. There's other times maybe where from a tax purposes, for tax purposes, you can't do that. And then you have to think about how do I track the S&P? What, what else can I do in the portfolio to continue to track the S&P without maybe making this exact rebalancing change? Because again, you know, clients don't really care. The goal is to track the S&P. I don't have to hold all the constituents. And we'll talk a little bit later. You know, most people don't hold all the constituents, but th there's different ways to do it. But the ultimate goal is still, you know, try to minimize tracking error against the S&P. 
Um, so yeah, let's talk a little bit about those other things you mentioned earlier, Lee. You know, not everybody who does this is just trying to track the S&P 500. A lot of people are trying to express things beyond that. And you know, one of the big ones I think is ESG, but people, some people don't hold, you know, don't want to hold the exact S&P. They want to more customize the S&P for themselves or customize some other index for themselves. So do you see that a lot with clients? Do you see this customization beyond the standard indexes? Yep. Uh, several of our, our clients who have direct indexing portfolios do have some sort of ESG or SRI constraints. Some don't. They're just more concerned with that tax, uh, the tax benefit. Uh, different providers offer different levels of customization in this industry or you know, in this uh, direct indexing strategy. It's a little bit, some managers have different names for the same thing as others. So you kind of have to dig under the hood a little bit. Uh, we have, we have two clients who are veterinarians and don't like animal testing. You can actually screen that out, uh, in a direct indexing strategy. And it actually knocks out way more stocks than you ever think it would. Uh, just the way Sustainalytics or the other d data providers track those things, you create a lot of tracking error. Now, is the client okay with that? In this case, the answer is yes. That's what they asked for. We're de we're delivering, we're delivering that uh, value proposition that they requested. You can you can also screen out sectors if you don't want fossil fuels. If you don't want, uh, pick a random sector. You can screen them out. You can screen out individual companies. You can screen out uh, or tilt towards uh, with some managers themes so you can have more diverse boards or uh, good grades on governance by people who track such things so they can be very very customized customization usually comes at the expense of tracking error but if the client's fine with that then then we're delivering uh, something of value to the client this goes back to that marginal piece too. So it's like customization for sake of tracking error, for sake of the tax benefits and everything else too. So when we're trying to help a client through making the decision, if this is the right tool for them, like everything that Lee just said gets like stacked up. So when Justin comes to us and says, Matt and Lee, I want to do direct indexing. I only want to own companies where the CFO is named Justin or something. And we go like, great, we can do this, but you're going to outperform so much that you're just not going to be able to like give away this sum of money in the future. And that's, that's a true story. Yeah. One of the things on customization I think is important to keep in mind is, you know, I, I kind of say, I always say with these turnover is the enemy, enemy of tax efficiency. And so you have to be careful about this. Like people sometimes take this a little bit too far and they're like, all right, I'm going to create my direct index and now I'm going to overlay momentum on it. And so I'm only going to buy stuff with momentum. And you just have to remember the more you're trading, the more you're turning over the portfolio. You know, one of the reasons this works on something like the S&P 500 is it's ultra low turnover. So I can track the index and I, and I can harvest these losses and I don't have to worry about like, I'm not constantly, I don't have a strategy where I'm having to constantly buy and sell. When you start introducing something like momentum, it becomes much, much harder to do it. Not that it can't be done. And there are some people that do that use things like momentum and value in these, but you just have to be careful about realizing that, you know, if the goal is tax efficiency, this other stuff can sometimes get in the way of that. I'm not going to use the, the KRS one quote exactly. Cause it's, you know, you can look it up on your own. <laughs> the remix for P is, is free, but it's the, the line I always come back to is it's, you know, the index is free, free to use, not free to license. The index is free, but the strategy costs money. 
And so like a momentum strategy for all the embedded costs, not just the trading costs, but turnover, taxes, and all that other stuff. Like you can have whatever index you want, but the implementation is going to change your cost profile. And you got to understand all those things. And if you're not thinking through all those things and how it overlays with your providers and whatever else, you're probably going to be disappointed at some point when the strategy lets you down and there's a whole bunch of embedded costs you didn't realize you had to ask about. Do you guys think there's a behavioral advantage here? You know, going back to your point about the veterinarians, like, do you think if somebody builds their own index versus investing in the S&P, do you think they're more likely to stick with it when times get tough because they played a role in creating it? It certainly doesn't hurt. Um, especially when you have these clients with the ESG, SRI, call it whatever you want, screens or themes, they're, they are the ones deciding that we have, we're not going to tell anybody what their values are. They're going to tell us what their values are and we're going to work around them. Or they can say, we don't care. Just make us the most money possible, which is of course the goal for all of us. Um, they these direct indexing strategies do tend to be very sticky. We don't see too many clients, you know, starting and stopping. You you can turn off management uh, of any direct indexing strategy, and you're just going to own a portfolio of stocks, whatever they had when you told the manager to stop, um, which is not terribly attractive uh, unless you want to handle you know, owning a couple hundred stocks and figuring out what to do with them. I can't. I don't think it's. It can be overstated enough. It's that thing, I think we've talked about it previously too, the Ikea effect, which is the idea that if you build something, you inevitably value it more. And so the behavioral benefit of going through the exercise of implementing a strategy with customization, there's an Ikea effect. You help build the thing, so you're more likely probably to stick to it. The reality is, is we've all assembled stuff from Ikea that kind of sucks after a while. And then you get the headache of you put it together and then you're like, oh, this balsa wood desk is the worst thing ever and like anything you can stick to it but if it's not serving you you need people who go like hey it's time to put that out for the yard sale too and that happens over time i had this ikea dresser for like years like the front of it was falling off like but i'd put that Always. thing together and i'm like i'm not getting rid of this thing like i mean i think i finally did but like the thing was in such horrific shape by the time i got rid of it because i remember the process of putting it together and it, it was a pain in the ass Prospect theory, the endowment effect, those are all great, but I think like the IKEA effect <laughs> explains more behavioral finance stuff than anything else. And it, it's it's a little like a window dressing sort of points here, but I mean, some investors do like to hold individual stocks. So someone could log into their account and see they're holding one ETF or they're logging into the account and they're seeing they're holding hundreds of the stocks. So just from a perceived value perspective, if you're a financial advisor that's using direct indexing and you've built the index and it's a customized for with the investor, you know, it sort of shows them that I think more work and effort is even though a lot of that might be automated once it's in place, it's they're still owning, you know, hundreds of individual securities. And then within that that list of of holdings and and in the portfolio, you know, because you're holding on to the winners, I mean, people like to see the positions that have done really well if they're up a couple hundred percent or thousands of percent. Wow, my NVIDIA position is up, you know. 15,000% since it was added, you know, whatever it might be. So there is, I think those sort of things like factor into the behavioral aspect of someone's ability to sort of stay with the strategy, but also feel that there's some value added because, you know, my advisor isn't just throwing me in, you know, these three ETFs and calling it a day. A flower is just a weed with a marketing budget. 
<laughs> I remember like, do you remember like some, some some ETF providers tried to like create like the one ETF that financial advisors need. And like, this is, it completely didn't work at all because like financial advisors just could not like go to clients and say, oh, I, I built your portfolio. Here is one ETF. You know, clients just would not live with that no matter what, even, even though the strategy might've made some sense. It was like, that, that's just not, and also obviously financial advisors want to customize things for individual people. So this idea that there can be one ETF for everybody doesn't make sense either, but it, it, it is interesting. Like I think clients do like to see, I don't know if you guys see it, but they do like to see some degree of something going on in their portfolio besides like this really simple, you know, thing with one thing there. Some people love that, but that's like, if that's how you're wired, then that's what the financial advisor should guide you towards. The thing that's that you're wired like that reinforces your own natural tendencies for behavior. We're not going to fight who you are or how you're wired. We, we just want to find the thing that you're wired for and then help you implement. Without getting in the weeds too much of, because I am sort of a quant nerd around this stuff, I want to talk a little bit about how these things are constructed. Because when you go behind the scenes, you know, you think at a high level, all right, let's just talk about a basic S&P 500 direct indexing portfolio. You think at a high level, all right, I'm going to buy the 500 stocks, I'll harvest the losses, I'll replace it with something, you know, this should be pretty simple. But it's actually not that simple. You know, first of all, the first thing I said, I'm going to buy the 500 stocks, like most people don't actually do that. Most people will buy like a tracking portfolio, a subset of the 500 stocks, which tracks the index close enough. You know, I've even seen like I got a marketing email from someone the other day who's doing it with sector ETFs. Like they're, they're basically just buying all the sector ETFs and then they're trying to harvest the losses at like a sector level as opposed to the individual positions. So there, there's so many different ways you can do this behind the scenes. So Lee, have you seen that too? I mean, have you seen like a lot of different ways people could construct these? Yep, I've seen the sector ETF strategy as well. Um, the Maybe the benefit is that there's only 11 uh, as opposed to you know the S&P where you're dealing with 500. And there's multiple different options for sector ETFs. You can, you know, if utilities go down, you sell utility fund A and buy utility fund B and it's, and you have a lower, a lower hurdle for clients to get to. An S&P 500 direct indexing strategy is probably going to have 200-ish stocks, depending on what manager you pick, maybe a few less, maybe a little bit more. For this to work, when the stock goes down to sell it, you have to have something to buy that's similar enough to the stock that you sold. You have to have that bench of stocks and the S&P tends to trade a lot together. Depend, you know, it, It's just the way the world is today in, in stock market investing. So uh, you, don't, you don't need all 500 stocks. In fact, it wouldn't, it wouldn't work. Uh, if you if you tried to buy all of them. Yeah, and it's interesting that that point you just made about like what to replace it with is also, you know, when you see direct indexing providers, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes there. You know, you'll see a lot of them with, you know, some advanced correlation analysis. It's like, what do I, I just sold this stock or this chunk of stocks. I need to replace it with something and continue to track the S&P 500. That can be tricky. You know, what, what do I do? Do I buy more? I could just buy more of the S&P 500 as a whole. But if I just, if I took out like a unique risk, if I just sold like all the large cap stocks, my tracking error is going to be up. So it's like, th there's different ways to think about this. And, you know, when, at least when I've looked at different providers that do it, they all sort of handle it in a different way. The ultimate goal still is to track the S&P 500, but I've got to replace this with something, at least for a period of time, until I can buy the other thing back, if I'm going to buy the other thing back. And there's, there's a lot of details that go on behind the scenes in terms of how to do that. Yep. And, and you have, you know, you have 500. That, that's a pretty, pretty big universe. You know, go find somebody who can name all 500 stocks in the S&P 500 and uh, good luck. Um, you just don't need to 
have exposure to all of them to get S&P 500-like exposure. So let's kind of, let's just kind of walk through an example. So, you know, you, you, you start the year, energy sells off, you have losses in energy, you sell in the, in the index, you go in and you sell, you know, whatever percent, let's say 30% of your energy names to harvest those losses. So the first question is, I'm curious, Lee, what you would say to this is like, what is the threshold that you actually harvest the losses? Is it like, you're always harvesting losses as they're materializing. Do you wait until a certain amount of losses are achieved and then harvest them? Or sort of so that's that's one question. But then on the replacement, you could say, okay, let's replace those names, those energy names, with maybe other energy names that are in the index that you're not holding. You could replace them with the energy ETS. Um, or to Jack's point, and I think Aaron Stanhope maybe said, Jack, correct me if I'm wrong here, that the way O'Shaughnessy does is they look at like correlation. Uh, among other asset classes, the amount of variability that the other stocks in the market are exhibiting that give you the same type of risk and return exposure. And those don't even have to be in the same industry or sector. They can be different. So anyways, there's a lot going on there, but those are just things to maybe let's flush, flush that out a little bit more. Yep. How, how managers trade is one of just a myriad of things. You know, if you're talking to somebody for the first time or even if you've done this for, for a number of years, because not all of them approach it the exact same way. I will say I don't, uh, we don't haven't worked with anyone who has replaced stocks with sector ETFs. Um, it's more by selling stock A and buying stock B that either is the most similar to it or has high correlation with it or whatever metric somebody uses. With this stuff, in a lot of ways, the proof is in the pudding with this. You know, I mean, what am I trying to do as a direct indexing manager? I'm trying to harvest losses for tax purposes, and I'm trying to continue to track the index. And so every manager sort of at the end of the year or at the end of whatever period is accountable to how well did you track the index? You know, whatever you do, if, if it's tracking the index well and it's tracking it consistently over time, then it's probably, it's probably working fairly well. But it, it, there's definitely behind the scenes a lot of different ways you can get there. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, like, are, have you guys, when you use this in financial planning, are, are there any other like more advanced things. I mean, obviously just at a high level, we've got taxes, you know, we've got somebody we can say, you know, this is probably a better thing for you from a tax standpoint versus an ETF. But are there other more advanced things you are able to do with this, that this opens up for you? So I want to talk about that. And then I want to kick another question over to Lee, just because it's something that I've seen him think through in real time. And I want to just bring it up. So like specifically to financial planning, one of the biggest things is as those gains come up, So number one, if you have the assets that warrant us looking at this type of a strategy for you, and usually it's the account or the sleeve level assets, not just your total net worth, but like you have to have an account that has significant money in this where we would go, yeah, the marginal impact of reducing the tax drag in in turn of adding the extra internal expense and then having all the holdings, you can't do this with $10 in your Robinhood account. Like you got to have some money to do this. Once you have the money and then once you get into problems, like you've done it for five years or 10 years or you own NVIDIA for six weeks or whatever happens when you make these crazy returns, um, then it becomes like, how is this part of, like clients have gifting strategies as an example. So if if the direct indexing manager owns shares of a stock, it goes up 600% in eight months and you're like, okay, well, uh, the client has a gifting strategy every single year. So now we have highly appreciated shares that instead of selling to rebalance, we can take the highly appreciated shares and we can specifically just, it's like taking that lot 
we can take that lot and use that as the gift to the charity or whatever else. That amount of flexibility doesn't work for everybody, but when it does work is can be hugely powerful and it solves some of that problem that you brought up before, Justin, which is we have a different level of granularity with the detail. And if that fits into your plan, that can really help support some of those initiatives because you've bought yourself more flexibility with the strategy. Did that answer the, I think that's like the biggest financial planning component is just yep. that granularity. And then like, well, Lee, do you want to add to that? And then I'm going to ask you yeah, a question. It, it's one of the, it, for clients who are charitably inclined, a tax managed strategy makes even more of a, of a case. If you bought SPY number of years ago at, hundred thousand dollars and it's worth four hundred thousand dollars today you you can gift some of the shares but it's um depends on when you bought them and you're having to make you know that decision with with a direct indexing strategy like we just did this uh a few weeks ago client had a one thousand percent gain in something and wanted to make a charitable gift gift the shares, reduce the tracking error, because that thing is obviously overweight its underlying weight in the S&P 500, and you've solved two problems at once. So Lee, just take a second because I've, I've seen you do this where you've done the side-by-side -side comparison like with clients, and just talk about when we're reviewing or when you're reviewing a manager, specifically with direct indexing for a client, there's, I think, five things you're really looking at when you're dissecting a manager for a client. Yep, yep. there's there's six. We kind of already talked about uh, replication. You know how to in correlation strategies. How you I trade. don't have enough fingers for six though. How can I remember? <laughs> you don't. You don't have a thumb on your other hand, Matt. No, no, thumbless. <laughs> okay, write it down. All right, Matt. thumb. So, <laughs> not, we've already touched on fees. They continue to come down, but they are very disparate uh, across the industry. Uh, there's, I've seen some that are half the cost of others. Um, and they mostly do the same thing. Service level, both to us as advisors and to the clients, especially when you get into these gifting analysis or, uh, moving assets, you know, calculating tracking error, responding to inquiries. It's just of any asset manager, direct indexing or otherwise you want to, uh, you want to receive good service. Uh, what custodian you're at makes makes a difference some directing indexing managers work with some but not others some are work with everybody so you have to know that in advance we've already talked about the esg sri component what kind of customization does a direct indexing manager offer and does it offer what your clients care about and then the the last one is you know frequency of trading how we kind of touched on a little bit how much of a loss does a manager need to sell and then after they sell what do they do and that approach is not universal we, we prefer uh, a little bit more active trading people who have the technology to trade more often but avoid wash sales uh, whereas some are more static hey they make trades and then 31 days later they'll look at it again uh, we prefer not that approach I'm just curious, as a 
advisor, when you use this, how does it, how do you, cause we only do this for individ, our own individual clients. We don't do this for advisors. Well, so I'm just curious, what do you see? Like, are, are, is the direct industry provider like suggesting trades for you and then you're confirming you want to do them or are they just doing it? Like, how does that work? They, they just do the trades. Okay. Um, you, you can provide parameters, tracking error. If, if they do have a tax budget that you're mindful of, obviously the ESG, um, you, you can obviously pick your underlying benchmark where that fits into a client's portfolio, but they're not asking, Hey, do you want to sell a and buy B they're managing a portfolio the same way SPY manages their portfolio and the same way an active manager manages their portfolio and we can judge them accordingly. Which is a big part of like, why you work with an advisor to do this. You're probably not doing this yourself because understanding how all that works with your custodian, with the parameters that you can set, like just setting those parameters, every provider has slightly different parameter settings and then how they execute on it. That's a big piece of the, that's a big textbook to work your way through to make sure you're thinking about all the things to, to get what you want, to not have Jack's Ikea uh, dresser with the front falling off of it. Like you want to think through these things in advance. Yeah. It's some of the more advanced ones you even can see, like, like, uh, I think when Aaron Stanhope was on, he was giving us the example of, you know, if there, if there's a specific year where a client like wants to take gains or something like that, you can have like a gains budget you can yep. set and you, you can actually take the gains then because the client has some other reason they're able to take gains right now. So there's like crazy amount of customization you can do here in terms of customizing this for the exact yep. person in their exact situation. Yeah, for, for most of our clients, the tax budget is, is zero. But if they were to say, hey, I had this private investment that went south, I have this much in, in losses, let's, I don't, let's use some of them to reduce tracking error. We can do that for them. It doesn't happen some... very often, but it could. <laughs> I, I mean, I'd like it to never happen. We don't want clients to lose money, but such is life. So to kind of summarize, I mean, what do we think? I mean, we have a lot of individual investors who listen to us. And if they're looking at these strategies, I mean, they're going to see them a lot more. You know, the individual brokerages are doing them now. You know, they're going to see this coming from a lot of different directions. Like, what do we think at a high level are the, the most important things to keep in mind when, when you're being presented with a strategy like this and I have to make a decision, you know, is this right for me? Like, what, what are the most important criteria they should be looking at? I'll take a stab first. And I think it's literally... If you have an understanding or working with your advisor, you have an understanding or doing it yourself, you have an understanding of like, I want to track these indices and I feel like there's a more tax efficient way to do it. Again, as long as it's not $5 in your Robinhood account, you probably have orders of magnitude, several hundred thousand dollars in an account and up. And you're trying to follow an index while maybe gaining some tax edge, especially with after-tax monies or non-qualified accounts. These are viable strategies to look at. You got to understand what you're getting. You got to understand the index is free. It's the strategy that costs money. Peel it all apart. Talk to somebody who can help you and, or at least listen to stuff like this. Get an idea of the questions that you want to ask. What am I missing, Lee? <laughs> you, you've got it. You touched on it earlier, Matt. What What's in it for the client? Or if you're the client, what's in it for me? Uh, to quote, uh, quote, Field of Dreams. <laughs> There's... <laughs> There's a, I, I, I was hoping to come up with a random reference to try and keep up with you, Matt. I think I did it. Kevin uh, Costner, what, thanks you for your service. Uh, <laughs> what's in it for me? I mean, he, he's good at uh, trying to figure out what's in it for him, right? Um, if, if you're a 
client, what, why are you, are you capable of understanding why this is different and how to manage it? And if not, an advisor who has experience with this kind of strategy should be able to explain it to you or, or this podcast. I think we've touched on a lot of the, the really important questions, but if you're not sure or not comfortable, index ETFs are, are just fine. Yeah, and going back to what I said at the beginning, this is a tool and everything in investing is a tool and tools work for certain things. You know, if I've got a screw that I want to screw in, I'm probably not going to bash it in there with a hammer. I mean, I could try to, but it's, it's going to be a lot less efficient. So you know, it really is, it depends on the circumstances. It depends on what you're trying to accomplish. This won't make sense for everybody. You know, just like a lot of things that are new in investing, people might try to sell it to everybody. It'll make sense for a lot of people. It won't make sense for other people. And, and I think that's kind of the key point to, to take away. All right, guys, good stuff. And hey, so listen, uh, this is the first time we've actually had three people wearing dress shirts on this podcast. So I'm hoping that we can kind of bring Jack into maybe pulling out a dress shirt. Uh, I'll have to have you on morally and kind of class us up a little bit, but we appreciate you uh, joining us today and hope, <laughs> hopefully everybody listening to I think this conversation. But. I think like Rob for Rob Arnott, I might have broken it out or something. There, there were a couple. There were a couple times where I mean, I'm certainly not going to put anything too fancy, but there were certain times at least a button down came out. But it's on very, very rare occasions. Well, I look forward to the day that we record the video for Validia <laughs> on uh, launching the strategy, the direct indexing strategy of CFOs and investment people named Justin at the firms. <laughs> I'd like to be the first dollar into that strategy. And if we want to do a separate dress shirt sub index. There you go, nice. for that one too. Nice. I'm, I'm just gonna wear a tux next week just to mess with you guys. <laughs> It'll be one of those t-shirts with a tux printed on it. <laughs> right, <We> know. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. All right, guys. Thanks for thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant. You can follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carbono and follow Matt on Twitter at, at Cultish Creative. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. Also, if you have any ideas for topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please email us at excessreturnspod at gmail.com. We would like this to be a listener-driven podcast and would appreciate any suggestions. Thank you.